0: the art of leadership network
1: Well yes, you are in the right place. Hi everybody, it's Carrie and this is the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast episode 500 and we got a brand new theme song. Yeah, you know, we have used the same music for 499 episodes and I thought, you know what? It's time for a change. Back in 2014, I think that was a great introduction, but it's not 2014 anymore. So some new music, but the same show. And we're going to deliver to uh, all of you as best we can, episode after episode, behind the scenes conversations with incredible leaders. And today is no exception. We've got Dr. Karen Gordon. I'll tell you more about her in just a moment. And today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can submit your application for their growth program, an invitation only cohort by going to promediafire.com growth and by Convoy of Hope. Yeah, things are still going on in the Ukraine that need our support. And you can help the war victims there by going to convoyofhope.org slash donate. I want to start by just saying thank you. Thank you to every single one of you who made this show what it is. We are blown away uh, by the response that we've had. And uh, it's because of you that we're able to do this show week after week and bring you some fascinating guests. I mean, when I started this back in 2014, I thought, yeah, you know, maybe I'll do 100 episodes. I wasn't really thinking that far ahead. And in in the back of my mind, I didn't even want to say it out loud. I thought, you know, maybe, maybe uh, I don't know, a million downloads and uh, almost 23 million downloads later, here we are. And in fact, we just passed a month where we had 600,000 downloads in a single month. Incredible. And that means more of you are sharing, more of you are jumping on. And we want to bring you some incredible conversations, conversations about leadership, conversations about your health, your life, and basically the person that you're becoming, because our mission here is to help you thrive in life and leadership. So I just want to say thank you. It's been an incredible journey, far exceeded every expectation that I have. Uh, But for next, I don't know, several hundred episodes, here's the theme music we've got. and uh, But the same show, and we're going to keep trying to bring you the very best of what we can find in leadership. So my guest today is Dr. Karen Gordon. We're going to talk about how to control anxiety in leadership, what insecure and arrogant leaders have in common, and what makes for great leadership. She is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, a TED Talk speaker, and she is the founder and CEO of DK Leadership. She has got so many accolades, it's a long biography but uh, she's been uh, nominated several times for the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Award. She has spoken live to more than half a million people in 17 countries, including a lot of Fortune 500 executives. And she specializes in working with CEOs of very large companies and often ends up at their homes counseling them not only on how to lead their company, but also how to lead their family. She has a doctorate in marriage and family and additional certifications in leadership, emotional, intelligence, and career direction. She's been featured on Good Morning America, Forbes in Inc., Entrepreneur, The New York Times, and in Canada on CityLine as well. So are you looking for your next wave of growth online? So whether you're looking to increase engagement with 200 or 20,000 people, you should be aware of what hybrid tech can do for you in online growth. So our partner, ProMediaFire, is working on hybrid tech with a select group of churches, nonprofits and businesses so the hybrid technology for online growth will increase your online engagement it will maximize your large budget or your small budget and provide you with a steady stream of online and in-person visitors plain and simple it's powered by the strategy of humans but faster much faster in driving growth than a physical team. So, if you're interested in this new technology, it's through their growth program. Promedia Fire is opening up the special cohort for large organizations in addition to small and mid size Submit your application to promediafire.com/growth. So, if you want to get in on the growth program, go to promediafire.com/growth. And our friends at Convoy of Hope are working all over the world, including in Ukraine to really help war victims. And if you're horrified by the headlines like I am, you probably want to do something. Convoy of Hope is a trusted partner. So to date, Convoy of Hope has served over 100,000 individuals in Ukraine, and they're also actively distributing supplies in the eight countries of Ukraine, Romania, Poland, Moldova, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Hungary, and Austria. They're everywhere. So when you donate to Convoy of Hope, you provide basic needs like food, hygiene supplies, feminine supplies, baby supplies, medical supplies, blankets, bedding, clothing, and so much more. If you want to help, and I hope you do, go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. And now, my conversation with Dr. Karen Gordon. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carrie. So excited to be with you. Yeah, we've been uh, waiting on this one a while. Haven't we scheduled, rescheduled? I think, what is this, number
0: three, the third time?
1: I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Travel, pandemic, illness, it all gets in the way. Yes. But here we are. And thanks for joining me. In well, I don't do a lot of these in my home studio, but here we are. Here we are. Because you're a neighbor.
0: Because now we are a neighbor, which is mm-hmm. just so awesome.
1: Yeah, but an hour away. An hour, hour away, and a yes. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. So I want to I start at the beginning. Okay. Because... You, as we got to know each other, you've talked a lot about your childhood. You have a great relationship with your mom and dad, which isn't always automatic. And your dad was a pastor, right? And you're a PK who turned out okay, which is <laughs> which is really interesting, right? Yeah. How did, talk about how your childhood shaped you.
0: So I tell anybody who is, uh, you know, from the pastoral kind of world, uh, the church world, that I'm one of those rare cases that I actually loved being a pastor's kid. And that you don't hear that very often. Um, and I think what made the difference, a couple of things, my parents are salt of the earth kind of people, and they have a very healthy spirituality. And I think one of the best things that they did is they really set very clear boundaries between, I remember my dad, he just, as a pastor, he would when he would get hired by, by a church, when the first things he would tell his board is my family is not hired for this job. I'm hired for the job, so that and he would make that very clear right from the very beginning. And so because of that, he would. I remember being very small and him saying, uh, "You're you're my daughter. You're my son. You know, I'm one of three kids." And he would say, "You're allowed to make mistakes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the church might judge you because you're, a pe- but we're not going to." And and I remember being a pretty a, awesome dad, pretty awesome dad. And so they had a very healthy spirituality. They also encouraged questions. They encouraged open dialogue. They knew about how to set boundaries between work and home. Um, And so I think because of that, I was able to really kind of grow in my faith. And I didn't, in (laughs) fact, okay, so here, this is interesting, Carrie. I didn't even know what a PK was. This is going to blow your mind until I was 15. And I was at a camp and somebody heard that my dad was a pastor. They're like, oh, you're a PK. And I'm like, what's a PK? And because when my dad would get hired, he said, my children are not allowed to be called PKs. So I actually did not even know what a PK was until from another person when I was a teenager. So it was very much of this very, and you know what? It's very interesting because it's almost prepared me for the work that I do now. Because, you know, when I work with a lot of high performers, almost celebrity status, very high profile family leaders, um, I'm like, you've got to take your kids off the pedestal. Like Mm -hmm. this is your role, not theirs. And so in many ways, it's actually really prepared me for the work that I do now.
1: You know, without telling tales out of school, did you or did you have a sibling who really pushed the boundaries to the point where your parents would be like, oh gosh, I wish we hadn't <laughs> given them this much permission?
0: If Okay, if, of the three of us, I would probably be the one that pushed them the most.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, not the other two. I'm the youngest of the three, you know, but um, I would probably be the one definitely the one that pushed them the most, but they still had this just really... Solid. Health, I keep kind of saying the healthy spirituality that those healthy boundaries, um, which it makes all the difference for children to know that they are loved no matter what.
1: Which is interesting because I think you come from a fairly conservative background, theologically.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Fellowship Baptist.
1: Yeah, that's a rare combination. Mm-hmm. Yes. In that circle, right? Yeah. It very really rare. is.
0: Yeah, and not only Fellowship Baptist, but it's really interesting. My dad was also one of the. um you know, his faith was very much around women in leadership. He was always really encouraging my mom actually to become a pastor within the Fellowship Baptist. Um, she, and even when I, so I went to seminary. I think you know mm, that, right? Yeah. Um, so when I was in seminary, I, uh, he was kind of still playing. He's, Karen, are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, dad, that's not my calling. And he was good with that. He was good with that. But he, uh, I think he would have, I think he would have loved He would have loved to have seen He would have loved for me to be a pastor without question. Mm. But I knew my my calling was a little different.
1: Well, you kind of are right? Just very different. Very different. (laughs) Very different. different. Yeah. Route. So when you were 13, at age 13, you got a diagnosis where you were told you'd be lucky to graduate high school. Yes. Went on not only go to seminary, but to get your doctorate and to practice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What happened and what happened to you when you heard that?
0: So I talk about this in my TED Talk. This was also one of those incredible moments, not only for me in my own leadership development, but also in where my parents come. Because whenever I coach any kind of leader, um, you know, at work or home, it's so important in terms of, there, there's so many incredible principles in this story. So I was 13. So I come from a very academic family. My dad did his doctoral from Princeton. Mm. Uh, my, grandma, my grandmother was one of the first female doctors in Germany in the 1940s. And she, was a, she lived with us. So she was almost like a second mother to me. Mm. Okay, uh, my brother and sister, you know, straight A students, both highly gifted. So along I come as the third child, uh, struggling in school. My parents could see how hard I was trying. Like I was disciplined. I, you know, I would get, but my marks were, totally not reflective. And so they knew there was a massive gap. So they sent me to this um, psychologist to get tested. And I'm in this room. I can still remember what the room looks like. I I can still remember with where I was sitting. I can still remember him pulling out. Like it's, it's like it happened yesterday huh. and he's, he pulls it out and he, I remember he leans forward and he basically says, we know what the problem is and you've got a learning disability and you're going to be lucky to finish high school. I remember just kind of sitting there and it's like my whole world just kind of exploded. Uh-huh. And and I'm processing it. I mean, he was so, he might've been intellectually very bright. His EQ was extremely low sure. for him to, sure. b- to tell any 13-year-old that kind of message. And I just felt completely hopeless. And so afterwards, and my parents were really upset um, that we had entrusted a professional And how he told that news was devastating. So anyway, so I remember the car ride home was very quiet. And then we got home and my dad said to me, this is where the whole kind of story starts in terms of his own just, you know, healthy parenting. He basically said, Karen, from this day forward, we will no longer ask to see your report card. And, And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, because your report card is not reflective of your effort. And in this house, we care about, we care about your efforts. We don't care about so much of the results. Mm. So he said, on the day of report card, we're gonna have one, we're gonna have one question, which is, Did you try your absolute best? Because you can control that. You cannot control the outcome. And all of a sudden, Carrie, as soon as he said that. I felt hope again because I can control my effort. I could not control the result. And so, you know, for any parent who has kids with anxiety, and this is a huge piece with anxiety, is when you get your kids to focus on things they cannot control, it's going to drive their anxiety. Hmm. So when you can get kids to focus on what they can control, which is their effort, it reduces their anxiety. Control and anxiety are, they're like connected. Interesting. So when I coach as a professional counselor, Uh one of the first things I get people to do is you separate what can you control versus what you can't control. Hmm. And that's a huge piece to the puzzle with anxiety. There's a lot of variables to it. But one of the huge pieces to it is so our entire culture, we focus on things we can't control instead of things we can control.
1: Hmm. I I got a thousand like synapses connecting in my brain right right now. So as soon
0: as I was able to kind of realize, okay, I can control my effort. And once, and so that was kind of the first step. So that that was kind of in grade, that was in grade eight. So that was kind of, so he said, that's what that in, in our house, we're going to focus on your effort. You can control that. Therefore, that is what we are going to hold you accountable to. And we will literally not even ask to see your report card. Mm. And that was in grade eight. Grade nine, this is where kind of like for anybody listening who has a strong parented kid, pay attention because I am that strong spirited kid. If my parents had parented me differently, I would not have had the success that I had without question because a strong spirit, you tell them to go right, they want to go left. You tell them to go up, they want to go down, right? (laughs) And that's your personality. And that's my personality. So you have to parent strong spirited children differently. And what you have to do with it, with a strong spirited kid is you have to help them awaken their own sense of direction and then you partner with them. Mm. So in grade nine, so after I have this diagnosis, my dad said, you know, honey, you really should think about asking the school for help. No. Well, you know, we've got this diagnosis. I think it'd be really helpful if the school knew that you had this LD. No, 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 I'm I'm not interested. I don't want to get any outside help. And this is as a parent, you have to walk beside your children Mm. because if they had said, no, we're going to call the school, if they had kind of taken control and kind of taken away my own personal uh, sense of control... I would have completely rebelled. A hundred percent, I would have rebelled. But then my dad said to me, he goes, okay, this is your life, not our life. Your name's on that report card, not ours. So we will respect your decision, Karen, even though we highly disagree with it.
1: And you were 14? And I was 14.
0: So I, I'm like, good. So I felt like I won this, <laughs> right? So this is, this, I felt like, okay, I won, the, I won the debate, right? So I'm not in grade nine. And then this is where part of, you know, it's so funny in the TED Talk, I actually, when I, when I rewatched the Ted talk, I actually thought they had cut out this part. And it turns out I actually forgot to tell this part of the story in the Ted talk. So the part that I forgot to tell in the story is that when I was in grade nine and I had my very first exam, it was English. And in that English exam, my very first exam, I got 37% on my very first exam in high school. And it was, that was my wake up call when I was walking home and I'm so angry and I'm angry at God and I'm angry at my parents and I'm angry at this. I'm just filled with anger. And then that is when I felt a very deep, deep, deep sense in terms of what I really, like God was kind of speaking to me around, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on this instead of focusing on this. Mm -hmm. You can't control this. You can control this. So what are you focusing on, Karen? And it was this very deep, deep connection where I realized I'm focusing on the wrong thing. So Mm -hmm. I ran home and I sat down and on my floor. And I started focusing on things I can control. And that was my huge wake up. So I'm 14 years old. And that's when I literally put a little strategy in place for myself. And I, the entire plan was focused on things I could control. And that's when I realized I need to go and get help. And mm-hmm. that for me, and you know, for any leadership, when I think about leadership development, like that is one of the foundational things is learning how to put your hand up and say, I'm struggling here. And once I was able to get help and put my hand up for help, All of a sudden the help was all around and I could actually start closing those gaps. And so I ended up graduating with honors, but man, did I have to work like 10 times harder than anybody else. But I was, I was going for extra help after school, you know, um, all I, you know, lots and lots of help with the teachers. My, the teachers love me because I'm like, I want to do well. I just, I'm not understanding this. I learned I'm a, a very high visual and kinesthetic student, which has helped me as a coach because I realized that. I know how to engage a group. I know how I have to kind of speak and teach in different ways so I can really kind of get their full engagement. And so, so that's what that's what helped me. Eventually I went to University of Waterloo, which was amazing, yeah, but I was working, fun. I was studying four times harder than any of my friends at yeah. Waterloo, like without question, because I would learn something and I just I had to almost reteach it to myself. Now I know what I need to do when I study something, but I understand for any child who has a learning disability, I know what that feels like and I know how alienated it's like our system is not, is, is designed for auditory students, not visual and kinesis.
1: So that's the source of the learning disability auditory. It's
0: it's called auditory. uh, Yeah. It's a way I process um, auditory. Mm. So um, it's a, it's a special way and it, you know, and I know how to, but it's been a gift. Like honestly, like now I see it as, I see my learning disability as like the, this best gift. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love it because now I know, I understand when I'm speaking to, whether it's, you know, CEOs or, or teenagers, I know how you have to teach in a different way to try to get that level of engagement. And it's making sure you're teaching to all three auditory types or all three learning types.
1: So this is, you know, I'm a totally amateur psychologist. So yeah, just throw yeah, this stuff out yeah. as, I, as I share it with you. But I have heard a number of people say, like, there seems—and you work with CEOs and top-tier leaders right. every day. So yeah. whether that's experience or research you've got in your background, feel free to disagree. But uh, it seems to me a disproportionate number of CEOs or senior leaders have some kind of learning disability, whether it's dyslexia. Right. My oldest son has diagnosed me unofficially as ADD. Yes. He may be correct. Yeah. I got 27% in grade 12 chemistry. Oh. I dropped math by the 10th grade. Right. Right. You know, because I just couldn't do it. Right. And, it you know, I got into university by the skin of my teeth. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is fun. And right. it took off for me. And I spent yeah. 11 years there,
0: yeah. right,
1: with the different degrees. But I'm yeah. wondering, do you see that as a profile of senior leaders that Absolutely. a lot struggle?
0: Oh, yeah. It's actually hilarious because when I when I draft anything in an email, I know how many lines I have to make it. Otherwise, if it's too long, they won't read it.
1: Oh, yeah, that's my my staff. Like my longtime assistant Sarah, yeah, yeah. she would like bold things, put it in yellow, yeah. and like you must read this in all caps. And then she would ask me, Did you read this? I'm like, oh, I don't think I did.
0: Yeah, you got five lines, everybody. You got five lines to try to capture the person's attention, right? It is, but they have like their own genius of like they have their own genius in this one area. And they just what's beautiful about all the CEOs I coach is that they they just uh they just outsource, like they know oh, yeah. what they're really good at. And they stay in that lane and everything else gets delegated to. You know
1: what? It's so funny. I have this memory and we're going to talk about the chairs. So maybe it's like, Carrie, you've got serious work to do. Okay. But I have this memory of, I know exactly where I was. I was probably in sixth grade. So I'm 11, 12 years old and I'm not very good at math. And I remember someone saying, well, you better get good at math. You're going to need it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hire that out. Right now, that what causes an eleven-year-old to think you're going to hire someone to do your math? Mm -hmm. Now that's how it turned out, right? Right, being you know, it's like, well, we'll get someone to run finance. We'll get someone. I understand a spreadsheet. I know Mm -hmm. what solvency is, Mm -hmm. but like, don't ask me to get there, right? Um, So one of the theories, and this is this is where this this question was going, is that you know, if 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 we were all growing up now, Mm -hmm. we would all be medicated, Mm -hmm. treated, whatever. And there's an argument I've heard that, that seems semi-persuasive to me that says that might be a mistake, that mm. sometimes that could be your genius. Like, look at what mm-hmm. happened when your dad said, all right, this is your life. Yes. We yes. strongly disagree. That moved the locus of control completely, to you. completely. I'm not asking you to say never prescribe drugs yeah. or anything like that. But what do you think about, Do we, can you, like, how do your weaknesses become strengths? And do you have to be careful to keep those weaknesses sometimes near you? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bad question. but yeah. you can redeem it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So when I started my counseling practice at 22 years old, I was at a medical center, and this kind of mm-hmm. came up a lot. And so when people, for example, had anxiety, depression, um, you know, first who's the first person they go to? They go see their family doctor. And there was 200 doctors in this building. And when there was word on the you know word on the street, there's this new counselor that loves young people, and I love young people. My practice exploded. So that's kind of mm-hmm. where I started my career journey. But I learned very quickly working with these physicians, just the different philosophies around medication. And my, what I learned is that there are so many things that people can do. When we talk about the realm of control, okay, mm-hmm. there are so many things that people can do without medication. Okay, so there are. there's no question there's some people that need it. And I'm always very clear about that. Sure. There's a ton of people that don't need it. And the, but they need to focus on the right, the right things. So things like you know how you know our mindset. I'm huge onto mindset, mm-hmm. right? The the power mm-hmm. of the mind and the attitude that you know in terms of the thoughts that we tell ourselves. You know, learning how to master a healthy thinking, learning how to master a really healthy schedule around sleep and nutrition, and how that affects our ability to in terms of how it affects our thinking, but also our emotions. You know, there, there's so many things that we can do on the education side. And so what I loved with the, the doctor certainly that I worked with, their whole philosophy is go see Karen first, learn tools, and if that doesn't work, then come back and we will give you wow. medication. So, right, yeah. so it was a second resort, it wasn't a first resort. And I felt like that was a really healthy way of looking at this because otherwise it's very quick around everybody thinks that they have to get medicated for sure. If I had gone, probably somebody would have put me on something. And, mm-hmm. but I didn't need it in my case. That doesn't mean that other people don't need it. So I think you have to just make sure you get a really, you know, some good, really good feedback. So interesting options. metaphor.
1: Second choice, not first choice.
0: Yeah. And that was from the, that was from the family doctors. Mm-hmm. That was from the family doctors himself. And, you know, it's. Again, we could have a whole conversation with lots of other family doctors, but certainly the doctors I have really enjoyed working with and collaborating with, that has been their philosophy, is that focus first on what you can control, that locus of control. Really master that set of that toolbox, and then we're going to work on the physical things that, that you cannot control. Right? And so it's kind of, again, separating those two different things.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, Karen. There are personality types. And, you know, mine, if you look at the Enneagram, I'm an eight. So basically, control, 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 control. I have relatively low anxiety, I think, compared to a lot of people I know, a lot of other leaders. I just don't worry. Sometimes it makes people upset. Right. It's like you should worry. And, you know, if it's right. nuclear war, I'm probably going to worry a little right. bit, but it's just generally not a thing. How is anxiety related to locus of control?
0: It is, I call them besties. Wow. Oh, yeah. They're besties. There are mm. certain things that are very interconnected. Um, anxiety is very connected to uh, both perfectionism. Okay. And also control. So I actually, and also self-esteem. So I'd actually call them like they're, they're four besties. I'll kind of hang out. Um, and the reason is because with with a lot of people with anxiety, that, so let me just back up. So, you know, right now what we're seeing and hearing is everyone's like, I got anxiety. I got anxiety. Everyone's talking no. about anxiety, right? Um, so I work part-time at city city line as a leadership relationship expert. I think you know that. And so I, we did the show on this. It was actually one of the most widely used TV show, to, by TV the way. TV show. Yes. Yeah, sorry. For the I should American audience. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Thank you. It's syndicated in the U S all across. Oh, it the, is. Yeah. Oh, oh I didn't yeah. Know that. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, syndicated all, all across the U S actually, but yes, it's a, it's a TV show, uh, that I do. I'm their leadership and relationship resident expert. And so we had, we did a show on anxiety. It was the most, one of the most wide, well, um, reviewed, uh, uh, episodes because I explained what is anxiety. And this is part mm. of the, so I what a lot of what I do is just education. It's just helping people understand these building blocks. Right. And so anxiety is just an emotion. That's it. Hmm. That's it. It's one word. And we've got thousands of them, Carrie. Most people think we have about 50. I, I love it when I speak and I'll say, how many feelings do we have? And sometimes people will be like, 20 or three. Yeah, three. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, we've got thousands. Uh-huh. Okay, we've got thousands. So feelings, that's all anxiety, all anxiety is, is a feeling. is how I feel. Anxious, happy, joyful, perplexed, tired, exhausted, excited. I mean, what was that? Eight, nine? Yeah. Okay. So that so feelings you cannot control. Thoughts you can. So this is mm. kind of a little psychoeducation, everybody. So what it is is our thoughts. Drive how we feel. Our feelings drive our behavior. So thoughts drive feelings, drive behavior. So when people feel anxious, it's just how they feel. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's not negative or positive. It's what we call neutral. It's kind of it's some. It might be pleasant or unpleasant. Mm. Okay. So, but anxiety is just a feeling. And so when I coach clients, whether it's a Fortune 500 CEO or a teenager, it doesn't make any difference. I get them to pay attention. How are you feeling? But then let's kind of go back and connect. What's the thought that's driving it? Mm. Because for a lot of people, the thought is what if. For anxiety, it's what if. What if I don't get this promotion? What if I don't have this amount of net worth? What if I don't get into this college? What if, what if, what if? if?" (laughs) Where's their focus? It's on the future, which Mm. they cannot control.
1: Mm. Wow, this is good.
0: Okay, So, so that's the problem, not the anxiety. The anxiety is not the bad guy. In fact, your anxiety is your friend. I tell everybody, your anxiety is your friend. They're like, well, Karen, it doesn't feel like my friend. Yeah. I know it doesn't feel like your friend, but it's trying to tell you something. So you got to pause and you got to understand what is the thought that's driving my anxiety? And then you've got to challenge your thought. You've got to really kind of be. Um, and so that's why, you know, in leadership, it's all, it all comes down to really being very mindful on what are the thoughts that I tell myself? And are they empowering? Are they truthful? Or are they... Toxic, because for a lot of people, their their thoughts are toxic. That's the problem, not the anxiety. Mm.
1: So this is fascinating because if you had asked me ahead of time, yeah. okay, Carrie, what comes first, the feeling or the thought? Right. I would say the feeling. Does.
0: Yeah, and most people would think really, uh, yeah, yeah. And this is this is the kind of education we need to get into the schools. Uh huh. Okay. Well, and, yeah, and,
1: and and you're you're helping me connect the dots as to why I'm probably not an anxious person. Okay. Is when I get anxiety, like if, yeah. and, and you want to make me anxious, yeah. show me something that's going down to the left, not up into the right. Okay. So if we're losing momentum, if we're losing yeah. this, that's when I freak out a little bit. And then what do I do? I go right back into control. It's right. like, all right, let's diagnose the right. issue. Let's look right. at this. Yeah. Let's get this fixed. Yeah. All right. Everybody on board. Okay. Starting now, we're going to do this and let's see if it causes whatever, And then, you know, I often, because the news has been very concerning, it's like, okay, well, what can I really do about it? Not much on this one. Then I'm not going to think about it, right? I'm not going to play that Fox News CNN tape over and over and over again in my head and try to get better sources. So that is a recipe for anxiety or? No,
0: that yeah. is what they call a solution to anxiety, which is so okay. you recognize the anxiety. Okay, I'm feeling anxious because I think, okay, so the thought is what, Carrie? So the thought was, okay, so you pay attention to the feeling. This is what everybody mm. can do at home. So you pay attention with what you feel. And by the way, feelings are only one word. That's one of the tricks of knowing oh. what a feeling, because a lot of people can't even differentiate between what a thought and feeling is. Oh, wow. Okay, actually, here's a fun question. I know a little bit of a sidebar, but let's come back. How would you, let's say I just come to, the U.S. I don't mm-hmm. speak English, and I hear the word thought, and I hear the word feeling. How do you how would you differentiate those two for me?
1: Oh, a thought is uh, an intentionally yeah. Again, English is a second language. Here we yeah, go. Yeah. Okay, an intentionally formed uh, idea or series of ideas okay. that you consider. Yeah, a feeling is um, often a subconscious mood that you experience. Okay. No. Okay,
0: not bad, not bad, not bad. Okay, so yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let me help to differentiate because this is again back to the education that we're talking about. Uh This is, it all comes back to education. This is why I love this topic so much. So, thoughts you can control, feelings you can't control. Okay, okay, feelings are one word, Mm -hmm. thoughts are generally a sentence. So, let me give you an Hmm. example. I feel as though you're, not a good podcaster. Is that a thought or a feeling?
1: Mm, that is a thought
0: correct. A lot of people get that one wrong. So why is it a thought? You're right? because I said, I feel as though right,
1: right. So well, you made you made an assessment. you made an independent judgment about my ability as a podcaster, right, right. right. So that would be a thought
0: correct. And it's actually and this is really important. I talk about this in my book. I have a whole I have a little grid, mm. a little chart for for people to really kind of differentiate this because it's really important. It's actually really bad English. And a lot of us talk this way. We oh, throw sure. the word feel in it and say, well, I don't feel like cha- you're
1: not listening to me.
0: Right. Well, don't challenge me on that because that's how I feel. And then the other person's like, uh, <laughs> what do I do? And they feel kind of powerless. <laughs> right. So when we're talking totally. about, when we talk about communication, when we talk about, um, great leadership and it, all great leaders, you've got to really separate what's a thought, what's a feeling because, mm. because you can challenge thoughts. You do not challenge feelings. Right.
1: A feeling might be, I feel unsafe.
0: I feel Right. And so the, the little secret with the feeling is feelings are one word, happy, sad, nervous, anxious, exhausted, perplexed. So you validate the feeling while you can challenge the thought.
1: Hmm. That's really good. And you can do that for yourself. Correct. And that brings the locus of control back to Correct.
0: you. Correct. And so back to the anxiety. So one of the first things, so what you did, which was very cool is that you would understand, okay, I'm feeling anxious. Okay. So you kind of go to back to the thought. I feel anxious because I think what I think we're losing momentum. Mm -hmm. So the thought is, I think we're losing momentum. Therefore you feel anxious. So what, what did you do? You created a plan based on that thought, because that thought actually is probably truthful. You're that that's Mm -hmm. real data, right? So then what you did is you created a plan based on that data. And that's why plans are one of the best ways to actually reduce anxiety. Oh, that's fantastic. So when we talk about change management in companies, I was just in Alabama this past week working with a senior team on on all the all the change that's going on. One of the best things as a leader you can do is pay attention, validate. I, I, I sense the anxiety. You pay attention, you validate it. Let's talk about the plan. Hmm. Plans reduce anxiety. So yeah, so that's why control. Uh, yeah, anxiety is the sense that I'm losing control for a lot of people. And so you have to kind of focus on what they can control.
1: Hmm. How did you end up here doing this? I'd love to go back a little bit because, um, first of all, that was incredible. Secondly, you know, it's not natural that somebody who struggled in school would, number one, graduate high school, but then go on to higher education and now train people in these things. Give us the, the thumbnail of the journey.
0: So thumbnail of the journey is in high school, I was debating with what to do. It was either interior design or psychology. <laughs> so very Yeah, very I was right? kind of like I was, it was all really yeah. I was a flip of a coin, but I thought, i can do in design for fun. I'm gonna do I really wanted to help. So that was kind of uh that's where I started, when, started off at Waterloo University with my undergrad in psychology. Um and so eventually we would do my doctorate in marriage and family. And so when I graduated with my master's, I was 22 years old. Um, and which is really exciting started and then a family doctor asked me to set up a counseling practice within his medical center. Mm. I had no idea at the time being a very early you know first year entrepreneur of how huge that would be because I had these 200 doctors in the hometown just exploded my practice exploded within two years I was at full capacity and then um, I just felt I, I love young people. you know anybody who has teenagers I love young people. Mm. they have they're curious they got a lot of questions things have to make sense to them. And I just, I felt a real connection. I loved them. They loved me. It was a mutual thing. I was super young. Mm. Um, so from that, then I started doing, writing books. I was encouraged to do television. One of the, my clients said, you should get into TV. I thought, why not? When, when you have no fear of failure, it's kind of cool because eh, it doesn't, if I don't, if I fail, like I I've failed so much. This is a cool thing about fi- about having an elder. You, you, you fail a lot, okay? There's a lot of things I've, so you kind of, kind of get used to, not fearing it. It's like what's the worst thing that's going to happen? It's not going to happen. So I thought I I'm going to produce a TV show. So I literally got a TV show up and going when I was 24 years old. Which one was that? Uh, I was called Spill Your Guts. I managed to uh recruit I literally I kind of go back. I can't believe I pulled this off, but um I got all the all the five big record labels in the country to agree to this music talk show and they would give me access to their celebrity uh, musicians and I would sit down with them um, and interview them about topics important to teenagers. So we talked about goal setting and depression and anxiety and, and you know, family relationships. And um, it was an amazing show. We So we sold it across Canada, the US and into Singapore. I was 25 years old.
1: And you're hosting this.
0: And I'm hosting this.
1: Spill your guts.
0: Spill your guts. So that was kind of my...
1: and And who are you talking to?
0: I was talking to so the show was really focused on teenagers and yeah, parents. Yeah, but who
1: are the celebrities that you're talking oh, to gosh. who are spilling I, their guts? I actually
0: had an opportunity to interview Britney Spears and I turned it down. Oh, I, I turned it down because man. I had just run out of talking, yeah. I had just run out of production money. And we were producing it. I had a I had a production company that I was partnered with. So um oh. so it was it was an amazing, it was just an amazing journey to kind of sit down with yeah, these no kidding. With these, um, with these very high profile musicians and just kind of hear them, hear them very, very raw, right? In terms of in just not your typical questions. So it was a little bit of a much music MTV style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, so that's where it kind of started. And then, uh, so I kind of like focused on teenagers for the first kind of 10 years. And then by this time, I was speaking across Canada. Um, And I had these amazing companies. Uh, Pepsi was one of my big sponsors, Pizza Pizza. And because I'd started developing these corporate relationships, um, I developed relationships with all these CEOs. That's kind of how I started. And then so what happened with the transition with how it kind of ended into more the corporate culture was I started having these conversations with these CEOs going, Karen, you specialize with teenagers, right? I said, yes. They're like, well, we're now hiring teenagers, Mm -hmm. you know, a variety of CEOs that I was talking to were saying this and we don't know how to manage them. So could you take your doctoral training at this time? I had my, my doctorate in family systems and in marriage and family, could you transfer that into the workplace? Hmm. I thought it's interesting. And I thought, could I do that? Well, why not? Why not Carrie? I said to myself, why not? Worst thing's going to happen is that it's not going to happen. So I thought, I'll I'll transfer. So that's what I did 15 years ago. And I found it, it was really easy, actually. So now we work with countries, our companies all around the world, I think we're we're working with seven different countries, uh, every single industry, we I started focusing first on managing millennials, because that was kind of my entry point. And I would, and then I what I realized is when I would work with these managers, and I could understand why were some managers having a really tough time on engagement and retention and why were millennials quitting? Because millennials, you have to, you have to manage millennials very differently. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that the secret sauce of really successful managers and great leaders was on emotional intelligence. And that's when I actually started kind of really, kind of really going deep on, okay, I want to understand emotional intelligence. And when you realize, when I realized that you can learn emotional intelligence locus of control. And wow, you just have to have somebody really, really willing to do it. That's when I got very excited. And that's when I just went really deep on the topic. And so now that's what I do 80% of the time.
1: So let's talk about learning how not to fear failure. Yes. Because I talk to leaders all the time. They're terrified of failure. How did you, and 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 I think this ties into your entrepreneurial streak, which yeah. I don't want to overlook. I want to talk about buying your first house.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You've told me that story before. And that's a fascinating story. but. How did someone who was told she was going to fail Mm -hmm. overcome her fear of failure?
0: Well, I think the biggest thing is I failed. Okay. So again, this is more of it for everybody who's a parent, let your kids fail.
1: What does that mean?
0: You let them literally fail a test. You let them fail a course. You don't rescue them. You don't kind of try to go uh, rescue them. Let them experience the cost of their failure. It Assuming that this is not life-threatening, okay? The second you're in life-threatening, then the rules change, okay? Uh But assuming, so you let your kids fail because this is part of parenting uh, a strong-spirited kid is that if my parents had rescued me from failing, I wouldn't have learned that lesson because when I failed, I realized two things. One, I need to learn how to ask for help because I was Mm. very stubborn. And so all of a sudden, I saw the value of learning and asking for help, which is such a critical piece of leadership. And the other real thing I realized is that I am not defined by my failure. Okay. So when I realize, okay, I fail, so I have failed this test, but that does not mean I am a failure. Hmm. So you separate your fail. So, so this is the part of why so many people are afraid of failure is because their self worth is attached to it. So you've got to separate it. It's like, you know, and this is what my Ted talk is about is we have to separate our self worth from goals. It's like, this is something that I want, but this doesn't define me. So, so uh, goals, whether or not we get them, we don't get them. We're going to be disappointed or we're going to be excited, but they don't define us. And so, so the uh, failure is just, we've just got to start seeing as feedback and data. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, that, that was where my parents really were very helpful when I was really able to experience that, that you know, really seeing my disability is this doesn't define who you are. This is just how you learn. Okay. So you learning how to separate those two things. And then what happens is when children really have that sense of security, that self-worth is like, uh, their self-worth is solid. It's like a solid foundation, that middle chair from my Ted talk. When, when you feel that, then all of a sudden you become more fearless. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen It's not going to happen. And so I learned that, for me, my grade, what I didn't want to do is live my life in regret. I didn't want to be 80 years old saying, I wish I had done ABC. Mm. I would rather, I would rather have failed. I would rather experience failure than regret in my mm. own brain. Like that's, I kind of, I almost weighed the different value systems.
1: Yeah. Let's, you know, the other thing I want to chase down is you have become an entrepreneur a real entrepreneur? Because, you know, a lot of clinical psychologists, they just kind of have their practice. They do what they do. They do their three decades or whatever, and then they're done. But you've been entrepreneurial. Where did that start? And how did that emerge?
0: So it started when I was 12, when I was actually selling raspberries and strawberries door-to-door in my little wagon. I would go and pick them up fresh in the morning and then put them on my little wagon and went door-to-door. And I mean, who's not going to buy fresh raspberries and strawberries if a a 12-year-old girl comes to your front door, right? So Uh I would sell it really fast. So that's when I realized I just love I love the sense of that I could I could have an idea and I could kind of go make it happen. So right. I think that's when it kind of got started and then um and then I think when I was I just knew that I wanted to have control over my schedule and what kind of work I do and what, and Mm. who I kind of work with. And so one of the things we have a career course, one of the things that we teach one of our many courses, and it's one of the actually exercises I get both teenagers and adults pivoting to do, which is identify your values with what you want in your career. And for me, I realized I wanted meaningful work. I wanted something art, um, artistic definitely making a difference, um, and, and having an entrepreneur, something about entrepreneurship. And so starting my counseling practice at 22 was a good start. And then, and then just being open to new opportunities and seeing where the needs were. That was huge as an entrepreneur. And then, so I did that you know, entrepreneur for twenty five years. I uh, just got nominated the second year as a nominee for Canadian Women's Entrepreneur Award, which is great. Um, but the one thing that I got myself because all my training is in psychology and counseling was I got myself a really rock star business mentor. Oh,
1: really?
0: Oh, yeah. And that was a game changer. That was a big game changer because I knew what I I knew there was I knew I needed business training and I needed somebody who understood business culture.
1: So how did that happen?
0: So that happened because I was hired. It was a very funny story. I was actually hired to um to, to go to this mentoring conference and I forget some television station hired me to interview the speakers at this mentoring conference. And I'm backstage and I'm not really paying very much attention but this woman went up on the uh, on the stage and she says she starts giving this very dramatic keynote and she starts pointing to everybody in the audience. She's like, "You need a mentor. You need a mentor. You need a mentor." And then she's like, everybody think about it. Who's the first person you can think of that, you know, who, who could be your mentor. And uh, I thought right away of this gentleman that I knew that I met in a marketing conference. And she's like, I want everybody to go home, pick up the phone, not an email, pick up the phone. And you ask that person. So I asked him, his name is Tony Chapman. And Tony uh, was my mentor for a decade and it was a game changer, extremely well-respected marketing guru here in Canada. Um, and he, was an exceptional. And now it's kind of morphed into this beautiful friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, he is just, that was, he taught me so much around business and marketing and just understanding kind of corporate needs and culture. So that really, that's what kind of, when I was kind of starting to move in more of the business side and organizations, that's, uh, that's where, that's where the mentoring piece is huge.
1: So let's talk about your book, The Three Chairs. It just came out, Wall yeah. Street Journal bestseller, uh, incredible, and gave birth to a TED Talk, which we're going to talk about. But what are for those of you who are watching? What are the three chairs? And uh, it's such a simple but powerful illustration. Mm-hmm.
0: So the three chairs are basically, um, and I talk about this in the TED Talk for for more information about it. But basically, it's the three different attitudes that we all have. It was a way for me to what. So what my and this is my learning disability actually at work because. I was able to kind of, when I actually started working with young people and realizing that a lot of people struggle with self-esteem, I basically started going into the weeds with the research. And there's so much research that's out there. Mm-hmm. But where we're missing, the, like where the gap is, is simplifying the research for the average person And, and really making sure that it's practical. And so when I realized the amount of research that was done on confidence and attitudes and how that affects literally every decision we can make, I thought, how do I take all this huge amount of information and boil it down to something that's very simple to understand. And that was my LD kind of at work. Mm -hmm. And so that this book really is very much, um, this is the gift of my learning disability because I realized it had to be visual. It had to be super simple and it had to be very practical. And so there's three different chairs and so the the maybe we can just hold it up for a sec. Yeah, sure. It's just so that I can kind of show everybody. So the left chair is uh what I call the insecure person um or the basically the insecure attitude is a person that kind of puts themselves down. Uh the the right chair is what I call the it's basically arrogant, the arrogant leader. They kind of put down everybody else. We all probably know somebody kind of like that. And then you've got the the middle chair and the middle chair person is somebody who's very confident um mm. but they're but the the di- key difference between confident and arrogant is is humility. Mm-hmm. This is the person in the middle of the chair saying, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. I'm going to put my hand up and ask for help. And so this is where this, so we talk about the confidence, uh, you know, what, and and not only the confidence, the attitude, but when somebody has that attitude, how it literally impacts every single decision in their life from goal setting to who they choose to marry to their friendships, uh, to in terms of perfectionism, it's all interconnected based on these three chairs.
1: Mm. Okay, so let's paint the profile because okay. this is really interesting so yeah. people can see yeah. themselves. Okay. The left chair, the right chair, the middle chair. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the left chair. The what would you say? Unconfident, insecure person? Yes.
0: Yeah. This is uh, imposter syndrome. So you can have, oh, okay, okay, so this is, so this has nothing to do with age. And by the way, I do, the youngest I've done this is five year olds. I've done this three chairs to kindergarten students, and kindergarten wow. children can see themselves very quickly when I kind of explain it. And then I've done it to fortune 500 CEOs. Like, I mean, it's crazy and <laughs> how it literally it's for every age group. Um, yeah. and so the, so I want everybody to think at home or wherever you're listening at work to think about which chair you are sitting in the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. So the person in the left hand, uh, the left hand chair, they would be, they put themselves down they They have a very toxic mindset. I'm okay. If I achieve. Right. Okay. Um, I'm only okay. If I'm not enough, so their their thought pattern is very tough, tough on themselves. They're very critical towards themselves. Mm.
1: Okay.
0: Okay, the right chair, the arrogance, uh, the, that's person who is very tough on other people. So they are very critical to, towards others. Mm. But what's interesting is that this is often the cover-up for the right chair or the left chair, right? So do not be fooled when you see arrogance. It's usually a big cover-up. Just It's like them just taking the mask off.
1: Well, I've read that narcissists are basically insecure.
0: Oh, it is. Incre- and I've worked with lots, of, like I've been doing this for 25 years. It's amazing of how many people can seem so, so arrogant. They get in my office, the mask comes off, and then you really see with what's going on. Mm. So do not get be fooled when you see that kind of arrogance. And then the person in the middle chair is like, they have a sense of confidence of who they are. They know their self-worth. It's not based on achievement. It's like, I'm okay, period, end of story. And so because of that, they're more likely to take risks They're more likely to set goals and go after them. They're more likely to ask for help. They're more likely to choose partners sitting in the middle chair. Um, They have a better sense of setting boundaries for themselves. Like you can literally, once you kind of know where somebody sits, you can actually make very strong, educated guesses on how they make decisions. Like I had people read the book and they'll actually kind of get freaked out because they're like, okay, because the first couple of chapters is all around understanding the chairs. And then once they're like, okay, I see myself sitting in the left chair. And they start reading the book and it's like they're reading their life.
1: So how does the person in the right chair or the left chair, yes. the insecure person yes. make decisions?
0: Okay. So which topic do you want about relationships? Uh, yeah. Relationships. Okay. So the left chair is often attracted to, what's your guess, Carrie?
1: Um, probably similar people.
0: Correct. So the left chair is often attracted also to the left chair or the right chair.
1: Wow. So they want someone to dominate them?
0: They, because what unconsciously, what happens is we're unconsciously attracted all based on research to people who think the same way we do. Okay. okay. So if I put myself down the middle chair, the middle chair person, what are they going to do? They're going to try to lift me up. Mm. Doesn't match my thinking. Mm. So I'm going to discount it. You're just saying that you're just supposed to say that you're my mom. I'm my dad. You're wow. my boss. So they will discount anything that's positive. The, le- the the right chair, they will put them down. So it matches their thinking.
1: And, right. the, and the right chair. I share. think I'm worthless. Uh, yes, you're worthless.
0: Exactly, exactly. Okay,
1: got it. And so it. that's
0: why these two are often attracted to each other for friendships, mm. for marriage partners, for relationships, and also business partners. So I can think about, you know, wow. hundreds of stories. So all parents listening, just ask yourself, okay, so this is when a lot of people are like, oh my goodness. Like when I do this in live conferences, Carrie, it's crazy. People like were literally blurt out, crap. Oh my goodness, I can see myself. I can see, like, I. Oh, yeah, I got right? a lot of
1: relationships when I access this material going through my head. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, I was speaking at a parenting conference in New York. This is several years ago. And after I got, I, after I finished about the three chairs, um, one of the moms, she's like, Where are you going? I said, Well, I've got to go back to Toronto. She goes, Can I drive you? My limo's downstairs. I want to take you for a drive in my limo because I got to pick your brain because this thing is like blowing my mind. And in the limo, she starts sharing with me about how she saw her whole life flashed wow. before her. She could kind of understand the decisions she made, why she was attracted to certain people. And this is what, this is what happens. Like when people see it, it's actually crazy. When I kind of teach it, I can watch the body language and people's eyes are just like, they can start seeing. So that's, that's just one topic. Okay. Okay. So that's one. Well, t- so let's it, talk
1: about the arrogant guy over here. Okay.
0: So the arrogant, the arrogant guy is deeply for the most part or a female. Cause you can see this, sure. right. Uh, for the most part, they are, it's a big cover up for this so learning how to you know you might have a boss who is sitting in that right chair you might have a partner that's sitting in that right chair and so learning so for people who are like learning to sit in the middle chair learning how to relate to people in the right chair is a really interesting thing
1: yeah well it's interesting because when i access the material in the book and in your ted talk i'm like you know nobody wants to admit this yeah yeah. but it's a coping mechanism i'm probably in this chair oh really really yeah, really? you don't think so? Right? No,
0: I wouldn't naturally, have thought that. Okay,
1: naturally, like I'm okay. hopefully learning to yeah. sit in the middle chair. Yeah, but I think that when I look back, because we, uh, you know, there was insecurity definitely that I had mm-hmm. to work through. Yeah, but it would usually come across as bravado. It would right. usually come across yeah. as control. Right, you can't touch me, yeah. or I'm differentiating myself. I've I've been talking about this with a friend hmm. over the last year, a really good friend who hmm. I you would say, oh, he sits in the middle chair. Hmm. But it's like I look down on people more than I should.
0: Really, That really is honest. so, Okay, I'm, I'm so surprised. Interior. Yeah. What,
1: what chair would you have imagined? I have would
0: been? have for sure said this.
1: Middle chair. Yeah. Yeah, oh, but would nobody's have. born in the middle chair, are they?
0: Well, nobody's born any of the
1: chairs. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, nobody's born any. We 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 learn all of it.
1: I, I'm hoping I sit here. Yeah. But if I'm not in the middle, yeah, I gravitate. Here.
0: Okay. You know, so as a family, my husband and I were just talking about this, and we were actually because at. at for Mother's Day, uh, like, for, like all moms, I had everybody, my, my boys, I had them watch my Ted talk and we did the discussion questions. I'm like, that's all I want as a mom. That's all I want. And so we had this amazing conversation about exactly this, this point, wow. which was, I think what happens is we, well, first of all, we all learn where to sit, yeah. but we also if under stress, we tend to kind of go to one chair. And I think that's it. If yeah. you
1: if you push my buttons, okay. I'm in this chair, not that chair. Okay. Because I don't wallow in self-pity. Okay. Well, okay. I do once in a while, you yeah. know, give yeah. myself ten minutes a year yeah. to wallow in self-pity. Okay. But it would tend to be like just a power up. Yeah. Let's get yeah. through it. Yeah. You know, I'll uh I'll boss some people around and feel better. Okay. Rather than I'm Feels gonna like sit there. in the corner and cry. Okay. Okay. But hopefully I'm living most of my time yeah. certainly there. as yeah. a result of my faith. Sure. In the middle chair.
0: Right. Right.
1: Which is your natural chair?
0: So my, so in my, so I definitely would have growing up and certainly with my LD was sitting there yeah. for sure. And then it was like my, my journey, my leadership journey is learning how to sit in the middle chair. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, nobody sits in any chair hundred percent of the time. Well, I was going
1: to say, yeah, that's yeah. why I don't want to say oh, I'm so middle chair. Yes. You know, yeah, that, that's I, my arrogance.
0: Exactly. And so what I, yeah, <laughs> what I would say is what I'd say is which chair do you see yourself sitting in the majority of the time? Okay. And I'd say like 80%. If I think of somebody who is a healthy confidence, they would see themselves sitting here about 70 to 80%. Of I the would time. say
1: 70 to 80% yeah. of the time, I'm probably in the right. middle. Okay, But push my buttons or lack of sleep yeah. or whatever, I'll end yeah. up in the arrogant yeah. chair.
0: And that's, I mean, that's a good reflection, right? Mm-hmm. And I think so under stress. So under stress, so that's the first question. Where do you see yourself sitting the majority of the time? Start thinking about how it affects your decision-making, whether it's setting boundaries, relationships, goal-setting, perfectionism, all of that. And then and then think about under stress, which we're, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the things actually one of my sons asked, which I thought was really interesting, is does it play out with introvert-extrovert? Which I thought was a very interesting, and I had to kind of process that because as an extrovert, you know, extroverts are kind of like, they tend to lash out. Like, well, it's everything is external. Correct. So I don't know. I haven't kind of figured out my theory about that. I thought that was a really, really strong. That's a great question. Isn't that a great question? Yeah. So, um, but I think it is a good question for everybody to think about which chair you see yourself sitting the majority of the time Mm. and under stress, when you haven't taken good care of yourself, which tier do you tend to kind of fall into?
1: So I answered the question yes. based on natural or okay. under okay. stress. Okay. But I would say, I hope. Yes, the majority most, of the, the time. The majority of yes. the time I'm in the middle. Yes. You, would you? Yeah, totally. Okay. Oh, yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I absolutely, I would say that. Um. So so it's a, I'll
1: take your clinical opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to accept that one. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, and but it's, it's a huge journey, Karen. It's a huge like, journey. Like this is this is like years of therapy, years of prayer, years of self-awareness, years of self-regulation, years of learning yeah. have got me. And I was I was quiet. Like you you said something I think in your mm. TED talk. You said, you know, cuz a lot of people would say no, you're n- definitely not on the arrogant side. Right. But sometimes that dialogue is inside my head. Right. It doesn't right. come out, but that counts, right?
0: Absolutely. Because Absolutely. your
1: self-talk could be like, ah, whatever. Or your self-talk could be, right. I'm a victim. I'm a victim.
0: Right, right, exactly. Okay. Yes. And so even if you say it quietly, like I said in my TED Talk, even if you say it quietly, it still kind of counts as that chair, hmm. you know? And I just remember, everybody, that it's, you know, these are these are learned. We learn it from a variety of different sources. We learn it, but we can change it. Okay, hmm. this is not Genetic. This is not, you can learn um, how to sit in the middle chair. Everybody mm. can learn it. Okay, so this is, I think this is what, where I really wanted, I really want to make sure the, the power of message of hope comes up very loud and clear. Because especially when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about all these like heavy topics. You know, people can learn. They can learn. I've done this for 25 years. Mm. I have never not been able to get a person in the middle chair.
1: So is that like, Give us a, and again, we're coming yeah. up on an hour. So oh my I really wow. I know, I know. Didn't it fly? Wow. We'll, ha- it we'll flew. have to do a round two. We have to do a we'll round. We'll do a two. round two. Okay. I've gotten to two of my questions. So okay. this is good. Okay. <laughs> um no, that's always a sign of a good interview. Um yeah. So give us a couple of hacks. If someone's like, Yeah, I'm the victim and you know, I hate myself, or if someone's like, I think I kind of am better than other people because yeah. their their insecurity goes to bravado. Right. If you can call it that. Right. What are some ways out of that other than 20 years of counseling, prayer, right. sweat, tears, right. You know, mistakes, and mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a healthier way to live.
0: Mm-hmm. So the first thing is really dialing in around the mindset is I am enough. Mm-hmm. Like I can't emphasize that enough because if people really just let it soak in, absorb it, think about it, like meditate on it, just really kind of understanding, I am enough, period. And just I've had clients where they've you know, written it up on pieces of papers. They put up on wall tattoos. They put up on their, their computer screen. Mm. I am enough period. Even the comments in, in, uh, right now with the Ted talk, people are like, I'm enough period. Thank you for this. I needed to hear this. Like just, so that is the foundational piece because once we understand that and we meditate on it, then all of a sudden, everything else starts falling into place.
1: Yeah. So tie that into your Christian faith. Yeah. Because that could be woo woo new age stuff where like, I am enough. And then You know, that whole idea that you wake up one night and you realize, actually, I'm not. This is a disaster. Yeah. You know, because uh, I, I think that is somehow theological.
0: Well, it's I tell all my clients whether or not they're atheist, agnostic, Christian, Jewish. I've got clients with yeah, all spectrum, all right? Spectrum. All all with, with all kinds of faith backgrounds yeah. is all you have to do is think about you know, with your children. This is always, this is when somebody who's really stuck on it, all I have to do is tell them, you know, would you tell your kids, I love you if you get an A? And they're like, no, I love you if you get your size six. No, I said, that's truth is truth. It doesn't change. So, you know, when you really start speaking truth to yourself, it's like there's, it's like this universal value system, Carrie. I mean, it's very powerful. When you really get people to pause and start thinking about that internal dialogue, And getting people to say, just think about what would you tell your child that you love? I would say, I love you, period. And once they're able to kind of, sometimes, so people that are stuck with this really toxic thought, you have to, and this is what I do as a coach, I have to get them to step outside of that themselves because the dialogue is so loud and so strong. You have to get them to step outside. Mm. Mm.
1: Okay, that's a really good start. Yes. What are what are some other things? Because I agree, you know, yeah. Daniel Goleman probably broke that ground in the yes. 90s. Emotional yeah. intelligence yeah. can be learned. Yes. What are some ways, if you're the arrogant or insecure leader, the imposter, yes. to move into that middle chair?
0: So the middle chair, the middle chair mindset, the middle chair leader, they have developed... So again, knowing that this, that they can do it is really critical. Just having kind of that mindset. I talk about five core skills of that middle chair leader of things that skills that they can actually focus on with what they can control. I call it the cards acronym. C stands for their communication, learning how to give honest and real feedback. A stands for their attitude and their goal setting. Goal setting is one of the best ways to learn how to sit in the middle chair because you're focusing on the locus of control.
1: Mm, That's why. That's why.
0: Uh, So the thing about goal setting is you've got to be very careful because um, if the mindset is I'm o- I'm going to get this goal and I'm okay if I get this goal, mm. you're now putting yourself back in the left chair. The goal the mindset has to be right. I'm okay, period. I want to get this goal because this is important to me. Then you're focusing on what you can control. So that's that's a really critical piece about um, about the attitude. So that's the second A stands for attitude, uh, your attitude and your goal setting skills, relationship skills. Is your next category, and that's your ability to focus on empathy and seeing life through a different lens. So that's where generational differences, personality differences really kind of fall into play. Um, And a great leader, regardless of age, they really realize that how I see it is different than how you see it. Mm. So that's a third skill set. The fourth skill set is decision-making and self-discipline. So this is really interesting. Mm. You know, self-discipline is very correlated to sitting in the middle chair. And it's also very correlated with happiness. There's been a lot of tons of research done about, um, incredible actually. I don't know Anyone, carry who is sitting in the middle chair who has not mastered a very healthy dose of self-discipline. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah, it is. So it really
0: self-discipline, is. which is really huge because when I started working with millennials, one of the biggest things that I started seeing is just this whole, you know, we're living in a whole culture. This is all of us around uh, instant gratification, uh-huh. right? So self-discipline is a cornerstone of learning how to sit in that middle chair.
1: Mm.
0: And the fifth category uh, S is for, uh, for stress and emotion management so that the leader who sits in the middle chair is learning how to set boundaries. It's learning how to say no, it's learning how to really take care of themselves and all parts of their life. And so learning how to sit in that middle chair is learning how to develop all five of those core. And these are skills mm. that all of us can learn. Yeah.
1: Breading this back to where we started, mm. anxiety. Yes. Most prevalent in the imposter chair, the arrogant chair, and how does it go in the middle chair?
0: So anxiety is very strong on the left and the right chair.
1: Both. Both. Okay. But both. it looks different. But it looks okay. different.
0: So on the left chair, the person is like, they're they're very uh they're they're putting themselves down because of the anxiety. So they're gonna, you know, it's just gonna, they're just gonna get themselves all kind of tied up where i see it in the right chair is they tend to lash out at everybody else because of that anxiety it comes out as aggression towards other people.
1: Mm. That's unhealthy me or old me. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So,
0: uh, so that's really critical. And so, but the person in the middle chair is getting them to focus getting themselves, their family, their team at the office. Let's focus on what we can control yeah. and accept whatever our best is. We're going to strive for excellence, not perfection. So you, you can't erase, this is the other thing about our brain. You can't erase thoughts. You have to replace your thought.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. So learning how to really, so instead of saying to herself, I can't, I got to stop. Yeah, you know, I can't be a perfectionist. I can't be like, that's not going to go. You have to, your brain is so sophisticated. You have to, and I do this with all my, when I was an executive coach, when I'm coaching clients, you have to replace whatever that toxic thought is with something that is so truthful and so powerful. And that's how you do it. And so you have to replace, uh, You know, you have to, to, you can't erase perfection. You've got to replace it with, I will strive for excellence, not perfection. Not
1: erase, replace. Yes. So good. Okay, let's talk TED Talk. Mm. You just delivered one. It's out. It's getting a lot of traction online. Um, What was the process like? Intense. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, it was, yes. It a yeah. It's right? it intense. Yeah. Uh,
0: it was an amazing, my book came out. Um, and then within a month I got requested to do the Ted talk, which was really exciting. I've always wanted to do one, yeah. um, but just had never, you know, prioritized it. So it was perfect timing. Um, but uh, it was awesome. It is, you know, I really see what I do as I'm a teacher. I'm really an educator. Mm. I love to take a lot of data and simplify and make it so that people can understand it and make it practical, right? And so so where the book is different than the TED Talk, the book is a business book. It's for leaders and developing leaders. Uh, the TED Talk, I intentionally widened the audience so that, you know, parents could watch it with their children, right? Managers could watch it with their team and um and teachers could watch it watch it with their classroom. So we have free discussion questions for all three groups so that you can watch it together and then have a discussion because that's it's in the reflection that's so powerful. And so it was an amazing process to go through it. For anybody who's done a TED talk, you know what I'm talking about. You get assigned coaches and people to you do tons of rehearsals. Um, the biggest challenge for me is was getting it down to 17 minutes. Like this is an hour, right? <laughs> I know. Right. I know
1: that's your life's work.
0: But it's my life's work. Yeah. It's my life's work. And um, and I'm just my hope was that people would would watch it, it made sense, and they would they would feel hopeful. And that's what I wanted. I wanted, because, you know, we're just living in a culture that feels like there's no hope. It's like, I've got anxiety, I have no hope. I've got a mental illness, I've got no hope. I've got like bad parents or bad, like I wanted people watching going, okay, this is hope, this is a message of hope. Um, and so I'm just really, and I'm thrilled it's getting such good traction and and that people are sharing it. They're And they're watching in their classroom and their team. And, you know, CEOs are sitting down in the, you know, in their living room, watching it with their teenagers. And that was my goal. Mm. right? So that you can have that honest conversation. Every watching, like watch it with your family, have that honest conversation, you know, that this is a process. This is a journey. We're not, you know, don't think, you know, don't, don't give the sense that, you know, some of you've got it all figured out, you know, having that kind of honesty, I think is just so powerful.
1: Well, this has been incredible. I think round one, we'll have to have you back Karen. it's been great. Uh, Also, your husband and boys are in the backyard, along with your dogs, and everyone's hungry. (laughs) Well, full service.
0: (laughs) We get a barbecue after this. We get a barbecue after this,
1: (laughs) and uh, we made everybody hungry for it while we did this interview. But I want to thank you so much. I think you probably opened up the minds and hearts of a lot of leaders today. Love the angle on anxiety. The book is called The Three Chairs, How Great Leaders Drive Communications, Performance, and Engagement. And uh, your TED Talk, does it have a title?
0: Uh, why Confidence is the Secret to Great Leaders at Work and at Home.
1: That's it. Yeah. And so you can find that. It's Dr. Karen Gordon. Karen with a Y. Just search that on TED.com and you'll find it. It'll pop up. Uh, Karen, if people want to learn more, where can they, what's a website where they can find you online?
0: Uh, the best is to go to our main one, which is DK, DK stands for Dr. Karen, leadership.org. Okay. org
1: dkleadership.org. Karen, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Carrie.
1: Well, that was a fascinating conversation. One of those that went on and I'm like, wow, I felt like we just barely scratched the surface. So I'll probably have Karen Gordon back at some point in the future. Uh, thanks so much, Karen. We have show notes for you. You can head on over to com slash episode 500. And next episode, I'm so excited. Seth Godin returns and I get his take on everything from the Beatles, to why he has no staff, to why he never listens to the news, and uh, the future of the planet, and a lot more. Here's an excerpt. But Paul, Paul is the reason for the documentary, because Paul needs that. He needs that audience, that
0: deadline, and most of all, he needs to make John smile. That he is there showing up, doing his riffs, not for the fans. He wrote the fans off years ago. He has no patience for screaming 12-year-old girls. That becomes clear throughout the whole thing. He is there
1: to put on this little show in the service of the big show. And John, John mostly brings in his stuff pre-workshopped, and John needs to seem like he's above all of it. And what I take away from it as a creative and as someone who talks to creatives is you should figure out who you are. That's next time on the podcast. Thank you so much to our partners. Pro Media Fire, you can submit your application for their growth program. It's an invitation-only cohort by going to ProMediaFire.com slash growth. And by Convoy of Hope, you can help the war victims in Ukraine by going to ConvoyOfHope.org slash donate. Also coming up on future episodes, we have Vanessa Van Edwards, Terry Cruz. Uh, Who else have we got? We got Patrick Lencioni coming back, which I'm so excited about. Nona Jones, Stephen M. R. Covey, Dion Nicholas, Andy Crouch, and so much more. I also, before we go, want to share some really exciting news with you. So I want to help you become the leader other people need you to be, right? Your family needs a certain level of leadership from you. Your team does definitely. And this week, we launched a brand new podcast called The Art of Leadership Daily. So this show is available Monday through Friday, and here's what we're doing on that show. We're taking short clips from the archive of this show, which is now 500 episodes long, and they're long-form podcast taking short clips from our archive and featuring some of the best conversations I've had with world-class leaders. Some of the voices you're going to hear on the Art of Leadership Daily include Andy Stanley, Simon Sinek, Nona Jones, Pat Lancioni, NEF Downs, uh, and the list, well, it's about 500 (laughs) guests long. It's hosted by Joe Terrell. Joe is the content manager for my team. He's a young leader. He does an incredible job. And in 10 minutes or less, he just takes a snippet of one of our shows from here and shares it with you. So think of it as your daily leadership dose. And as you know, I hear from you all the time, like a lot of you are going back into the archives going, I just discovered episode 323. It's amazing, right? We're going to bring you short little doses every single day. And we're giving away an incredible prize to four winners. All you have to do is text the word daily, D-A-I-L-Y, to 833 777 8558 you'll receive instructions on how to win a $250 Amazon gift card plus a membership to my new Art of Leadership Academy. We're choosing 4 winners the week of June 20th, so be sure to enter now. And if you want that again, here's the easiest thing you can do. Just head on over to the Art of Leadership podcast the Daily Podcast. You can find that anywhere podcasts are. Subscribe. And uh, I've got an episode showing you exactly how to enter to win. And then you can listen to that. Uh, just a short little bit while you brush your teeth or you're in the car on the way to work or whatever you happen to be doing, 10 minutes or so a day, Monday to Friday, The Art of Leadership Daily. And I hope you're one of the winners there too. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, let us know on the socials what you think of the new format and, uh, or, you know, send me a note, carrie at carrienewhoff.com. Really appreciate you. We couldn't do this and wouldn't do this without you. And it's a joy to be able to do this well indefinitely into the future. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.